Hello, my name is John Malloy, director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, based in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to The Moment. In this series, we try to reimagine our post-pandemic life together after our COVID-19 life apart. You're listening to our special series on polarization, where we ask some of Canada's leading thinkers why we're entering our post-COVID world so divided and can faith play a role in bringing us together. Today we're in conversation with Akash Maharaj, public commentator, writer and activist, former CEO of both the Mosaic Institute and before that CEO of the Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption. Akash, welcome to The Moment. Thank you, John. It's lovely to be here with you. Well, it's great to have you. And uh, as you know, the theme of this special podcast series is political polarization. The fact that even as we emerge from COVID-19, we appear to be a divided nation. Not only are there extreme views out there, but even those of us holding the middle ground appear to be more hostile to our political competitors. Now, your entire career has been about building bridges and bringing people and groups together. And I gave a very brief intro uh, a few seconds ago, but I'd like to ask you to share a little bit more about your background and your interest in combating uh, division and uh, polarization. Tell us a little bit more about what you've done in that area. Well, thank you, John. Uh, Yes, this is a subject that touches me very deeply and that has been woven through an otherwise eclectic and wandering career. My work at Mosaic was often described as track to diplomacy, which is a fancy way of saying diplomacy that involves bringing together ordinary people rather than formal political actors. That work was largely concerned with bringing together people, Canadians from diaspora communities, drawn from opposite sides of international conflicts. The idea was that by engaging them with one another, they could better understand each other, abate any tensions that exist in Canada between those communities, but perhaps most importantly of all, helping them through that meeting of minds and through the fact that they live in a new context in Canada to develop strategies for conflict resolution in their countries of origin. I enjoyed the work enormously, and it's the sort of work that can only be done in a country like Canada that throws together communities who are otherwise separated by conflicts of history and of of active warfare. My work at the weirdly named Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption touches on this subject, but from another perspective. One of the most difficult challenges for people who are involved in any kind of international affairs is the vast diversity of values and frames of reference. We often speak about universal human rights, and almost everyone will will agree that such things exist, but they will disagree profoundly on what those rights might be and how they are applied in a practical way. But one one of the areas of near universal, indeed I would say universal agreement between people in every culture and in every society is some form of the imperative, thou shalt not steal. People may disagree on what constitutes corruption or theft, but we all have this sense that if you are entrusted with public power or public resources, you should be using that for the public good and not for private gain. And this is an interesting aspect because it means that given that there is a fundamental principle that people everywhere can agree on, it provides a building block to bring people together who might otherwise disagree on everything else. And some of the work that I felt most proud of and most satisfied with at GOPA was was work with legislators from the 
states that emanated from the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. These were people who despised one another, in some cases who had taken out contract killings against one another, but they were willing and able to sit down at a common table with each other because they all suffered from the same blight of corruption on their countries. To me, I thought that suggested a kind of miracle of the human spirit. And I, I like to think that if, if the Yugos, former Yugoslavians can do this, surely we in Canada can. Well, you certainly, I mean, you bring such a, a wonderful international uh, perspective to this uh, situation. And, you know, I think all of us need a, a reminder that uh, although there are divisions within Canada, that, uh, you know, we have hopefully the wherewithal to, 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 to build some bridges. But before, I mean, obviously, I want to talk to you about your views of what's happening in, in Canada right now. And certainly the last few months have been uh, full of uh, polarization and, and divisions. But I want to start really at the at, right at the beginning. Um, what does polarization mean to you? What does that term mean to you, uh, particularly in the Canadian context? And it might be a somewhat unsubtle irony that even defining polarization tends to polarize people. <laughs> we tend to view polarization as almost synonymous with extremism, but I don't think that really captures it. Polarization, in my view, begins when, not only when people take differences of, of opinion, and not even when they take positions that are incompatible with one another, but when they believe that there, there is no scope for compromise or even any kind of flourishing coexistence. Polarization exists when people view differences of opinion and differences of, a, of position as being a threat to one another, that for them to succeed, they must not, they must not coexist with people who disagree with them. They must try, triumph over those people. Effectively, a polarized society is one where they see, where people see those who disagree with them as being fundamentally unacceptable in their society. Um, and all societies, especially democracies, should thrive on a healthy constructive tension between differences of, of opinion. The basic idea behind a democracy is not so much that the majority wins. It is that everyone has a chance to have a voice. And coming out of this sometimes cacophonous conversation comes a society that is more than the sum of its parts, that is not just different from, but better than it would have been if one group simply had its way. Ultimately, I would say polarization is a state of state of affairs where we see people who hold different positions not as simply being different from us, but as being fundamentally our enemies. And in the long term, no society, no democracy can survive that. Well, let me ask you uh, a little bit about the, the Canadian situation and, and where you see this uh, polarization evident in Canada. And obviously, uh, the minds of all of us go to what happened in, in on Parliament Hill with the truckers' convoy, and there may be a few other high-profile uh, issues that are, are dividing us. But along with those, and certainly I'm interested in your in your views on that. Do you see it uh, less visibly being expressed out there? Do you see uh, uh, polarization uh, uh, taking place, maybe not on the uh, you know the lead item on the news sort of thing? Well, I, I absolutely do. I think that what Canadians found most jarring about the protest in Ottawa and elsewhere um, is that they were we as people were forced to confront the level of polarization that already exists in our society those protests did not create polarizations polarization those protests forced us to see the polarization that already exists 
I mean, there are issues that we all recognize as being fundamentally emotive and polarizing. The classic one is abortion, but there are far more subtle and insidious forms of polarization. In a country like Canada, there is, in addition to the, uh, there is, I mean, we're accustomed to, the, to using the term two solitudes to speak of Anglophones and Francophones, but there are other pairs of solitudes. The urban-rural divide is profoundly, is that is a profound divide in our society. I was born in Toronto. I now live in rural Canada. So I have had the unusual experience of seeing our country from both those perspectives. I think that most urban Canadians, and I say this as someone born, in, born and raised in urban Canada, are completely unaware of the extent to which, of the extent of the anger in rural society, the sense that Canada is a country that no longer serves the interest of rural Canadians. And I think a lot of rural Canadians are unaware of the extent to which urban Canadians feel that the political process and political representatives cater to and pander to uh, rural Canadians out of all proportion to their, their numbers. We're also a, a society that has class polarization, and that, I think, is the is one of the most subtle and one of the most insidious forms of polarization in our society, yet it, it informs everything. It's subtle and insidious because, on the one hand, we are a society that has seen increasing, uh, an increasingly wide gap between the rich and the poor, yet at the same time, we are also, also a society that has somehow convinced ourselves that we are completely classless. Um, and as time has gone on, there are more and more people who feel that they are have been left out of Canada's social and economic pro project, people who feel they have no stake in the status quo, and so people who, who are coming to believe that their best interests lie not in working with their fellow Canadians, but in tearing down the entire apparatus. And I think, finally, there is a kind of intellectual polarization in our society. Canada has one of the best educated populations in the world. A majority of our population has some kind of tertiary education, be it university, college, or technical. Um, but that has, not, that has not led to a society that necessarily values education, research, and expertise, um, because people who hold those qualities are just as apt to make mistakes as people who do not. And I think as a result of that, part of the eruption of anger we've seen in around coronavirus and COVID-19 has been a result of people who feel a kind of resentment against the classes of Canadians who have been historically viewed as the possessors of knowledge and expect to be listened to as a result. Um, and perhaps people who, even in holding knowledge and, and in expertise, have not entirely appreciated the human impact of the mistakes they have made. The worst example I would of, I can offer of that is the uh, is the opioid crisis in our country. There is a catastrophic crisis of opioid opioid addiction amongst the white working class and amongst the and especially amongst rural Canadians, and many of those people feel an unmitigated rage against the medical establishment, the doctors, the pharmacists, who until very recently were telling them that opioids are non-addictive and that if you if you were suffering from withdrawal symptoms, what you needed to do was take more of these drugs and now their families are destroyed. That is one of the reasons why 
in my view, why there has been such skepticism about advice coming out of the medical community about around coronavirus, especially in rural Canada, because many rural Canadians feel that they were lied to or betrayed on the question of the use of opioids. And the the fact that that medicine, like science, is an imperfect practice, that we know more today than we, we knew yesterday, that is an easy argument to make intellectually. It's a hard argument to accept if you've lost a member of your family to addiction. So you see the, uh, you know, it, it all comes back, I guess, in these programs to uh, what happened in, in, in Ottawa. And you see it more as symbolic of uh, some deeper issues that have been ruminating for years as opposed to just out and out frustration with uh, with the COVID situation. I mean, obviously, there's there's elements of both. But but am I correct in, in saying that you see it a, a little bit more as uh, uh, things coming to the surface that have been there that even predated COVID? Absolutely. I think that it started out as a, these protests started out as protests against um, the pandemic restrictions, but they quickly snowballed into a generalized protest against the status quo. As I mentioned, I live in rural Canada. I live near a small community, community called Almont in the Ottawa Valley, and I live on a farm. As a result, I, I drive a, a farm truck, and during the protest, many people who were coming into Ottawa would and p- pass through my community and saw me you know, going about my, my chores with my pickup truck and assumed that because I drive a, a large farm truck, I must share their worldview. I do not. But those encounters led to some really interesting conversations. It gave me an opportunity to at least hear what it was that impelled them to come to Ottawa. And there are a couple of things that really struck me about that. The first is that many of these people were unusually determined. I mean, there were people from all across Canada who traveled thousands of kilometers in the dead of winter to come to Ottawa, which is not the most pleasant place in the dead of winter. And they were impelled because they felt, because they were desperate. They were desperate for themselves and they were also desperate for their country. I think that the program that lured them to Ottawa was fundamentally misguided. And some of the ideas that the protest leaders brought to the table were simply bizarre. I mean, one of them included the the basic manifesto, the memorandum of understanding that had framed these protests was that the protesters were going to come to Ottawa they were going to make enough noise and petition the governor general and that she would, according to them, agree to dissolve the democratically elected government, summon a junta from the Senate, and have that junta govern our country in an extra parliamentary coalition with the protest leaders. That is insane. Um, And the fact that so many people traveled so far and adhered to this idea that passionately shows you the extent not only of the of the passion but of the desperation. No reasonable person would believe that the program I've just outlined is in any way, shape, or form feasible or remotely desirable. To to come to this city, to Ottawa, to call for it, to want it, and to believe it, it was going to happen, that is an act of desperation. But let me let me pick up on that um, because there are voices out there that would say 
polarization is not necessarily the end of the world. Um, at the end of the day, uh, I'm right, we're right, and there's people out there who are wrong. Um, you've just outlined the fact that the protesters, and I have many, many friends and, and people I've talked to who just say they're wrong. Then, you know, they use all sorts of insults to describe them. Um, I don't have to tolerate them. I don't need to, you know, I, I may not wish them personal ill, but I don't really want to see them on my TV screens. They are wrong. You can go, you can move beyond uh, uh, Parliament Hill and you can go to many of the debates that are raging in our country right now, or debates around equity and diversity, for example, where there will be people who will say, yeah, you bet there's some polarization and division in this country because there's voices out there that have never been heard from again, or excuse me, heard from before, who are raising issues that are making a bunch of, and you know, I, I represent this comment, old white men nervous. Um, they're, they're, they're going after uh, those in, in positions of power and authority, and they're, they're trying to tear down some of the structures that have oppressed them. Of course, there's going to be division. Of course, there's going to be polarization. At the end of the day, we're right and they're wrong. I mean, how do you, how do you find that, 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 that middle ground? Because as I say, and I'm sure you have lots of friends too, that would say the folks on Parliament Hill were just, were just crazy yahoos. And, and we, you know, I, I don't want to hear from them. Yeah. I mean, those are all important points. And I would certainly agree that the truth does not necessarily lie midway between two extremes. If you had two groups of people in a hypothetical society, one that said, we should all live together as free and equal citizens, and the other who said, no, we should commit genocide against that other group. I don't think that a rational person would say, we need to find middle ground between these people and come to some kind of compromise. There are red lines in all societies. There is, in my personal view, right and wrong. And there are boundaries between which it within which civil discourse is possible, and there's some boundaries where outside of outside of those boundaries, civil discourse is simply impossible. Everyone believes that. The question is, where do you draw draw the boundaries? I think that there are many issues in society where we simply have to choose as a society, um, and I would say that amongst them, personally, the idea that each human being is endowed with an equal share of dignity is one of those core ideas. And that to compromise on that idea is to undermine democracy and undermine society. The problem begins when people are extravagant in drawing their lines, when they draw the lines more, more and more narrowly so that it only encompasses themselves and people very much like themselves. We have, we have to draw these lines in society, but we have to draw them as broadly as possible as broadly as possible, as is compatible with a free and democratic society. I would also say that there is a reason why we should care about people who hold views that we think are antithetical to us in our society. And that is because these people aren't going anywhere. No matter what happens or happened as a result of the protest in Ottawa and elsewhere, the protesters are Canadian. They're going to remain in Canada. People who disagree with them are going to have to live with them because they are our neighbors, they are our co-workers, in some cases, they are members of our families. And as a result, having a cohesive and stable society means that we need to find a way to deal with our differences. Even if there are areas where I think I'm absolutely right and other people are completely wrong, being right is not enough. I need to be able to bring others with, with me, because if I can't 
in the in the case of, for example, um, people who are fighting racism, I don't think many people listening to this podcast will disagree with the statement that racism is wrong, and we should have less racism in our society. But it's not enough to say that, and it's not enough for that to be true. The question is, how do you bring the rest of society with you? Because if you can't convince the rest of society that there are racist, racist practices in Canada and that those racist practices have to go, those practices aren't going anywhere. Um, and if you think, if there are people who think that, well, if I, if I simply make the case strongly enough, if I put enough facts on the table, if I demonstrate that I am right, then I will win, then those people have no grasp of history. It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to win the argument. In a democracy, you have to bring people with you. Well, that leads, I mean, that, that, that's a wonderful introduction to, to I guess, the, the, the big moment when I ask you, how do, what do we do about this? You know, how, how do we mitigate uh, what's happening? How do we address what's happening in terms of polarization? And, you know, what roles should be played by, I guess, there's a number of different actors, obviously, our political leaders. Uh, there's us as ordinary citizens. There's the media. I mean, what's the path forward that you see? I think we all have a role to play in this. Um, one of the reasons that I stopped and had those conversations with the protesters who were passing through my community was in part a sense of curiosity. I wanted to know what was it that impelled these people to travel across Canada to Ottawa, but also because I felt I had an obligation to listen to what they had to say and actually listen to what they have to say, not simply invite them to speak so that I could then speak at them. The, the first step is always to listen. That is always the key to reducing polarization. And I think that we make a mistake as Canadians if we think the key is to speak and to convince others. It's to demonstrate to others that we are prepared to let, to give them a chance to make their case, to consider it, and even to reflect ourselves on whether they might be right and we might be wrong. Beyond the individual level, there is a heavy burden of responsibility on the part of individuals who inhabit and lead public institutions be they political institutions, media, faith institutions, educational institutions. And I would say that that specific role varies from place to place. With the media, there has to be, on the one hand, an opportunity for people to feel that, they, that their voices are being heard and that a non-caricatured version of themselves is being presented to the world. That doesn't necessarily mean saying that that the media has to say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, when the one hand and the other hand are not equally legitimate. Um, if one person, if one group says the earth is flat and the other group says the earth is round, the media does not have a responsibility to report those two positions equally because one is, is palpably preposterous. But there are a lot more issues where people need to see themselves reflected back in the stories that the media tell tell us as Canadians. I think one of the strongest areas, though, or highest areas of responsibility is in, is in political institutions. We live in a parliamentary democracy, a multi-party parliamentary democracy with first-past-the-post, and that means that it is not merely possible, but it is very frequent that parties gain majorities in provincial legislatures and in the federal legislature without having a majority of the vote. Um, and indeed, for the past two federal elections, the Liberal Party that won those two elections did not even win the popular vote. The, the risk to such a system 
is that political parties stop trying to appeal to a majority of Canadians. Instead, they start trying to appeal to the, to the largest minority of Canadians. And often that is possible to do by exciting a sense of grievance against the rest of society. That is incredibly dangerous. It's, an, it's dangerous in any society and in any democracy. It is especially dangerous in a society like Canada's because unlike old world countries, we are not bound together by a common language, a common ethnicity, a common faith. Um, our country is defined by its diversity. And given the diversity of our population and the sparseness of our population, Canada exists and defines the worst conspiracies of man and nature. We exist as one country because, and only because, we are bound together by an idea of Canada, by a set of political ideals and a kind of secular faith that despite our, all of our differences, or perhaps because of all of our differences, we are still one people. When political actors encourage citizens and groups of citizens to feel that they are at odds with others, when political actors try to trade on grievances in society, they are not merely undermining social unity and fostering polarization. They are destroying the national ideal itself. And Canada as a country based on diversity, based on people who come from many different places and adhere to many different perspectives, is not a country that, despite its strengths, can survive a political process that sets us against one another. Finally, I think there are roles for social institutions, faith institutions, and secular social institutions to try to cultivate a culture where we embrace the idea that we can disagree with one another without becoming disagreeable with one another, that we can live together, not merely in tolerating difference, differences, but in accepting that we are ourselves better off because there are people who disagree with us and who bring, if I may say, a diversity of gifts to the table. And that doesn't just mean a diversity of race and ethnicity and language. It also means a diversity of opinion and belief. And too many people who valorize the one kind of diversity do not valorize the other kind. Would you, I mean, that's the, the obviously the underlying theme of this podcast is, is the role that faith and faith communities can play. And so would you expand a little bit more of, of the positive role that you see them? And listen, I take, and I, I suspect you do too, I take the criticism that faith can, can be divisive. Uh, faith leaders can be very, very divisive. But uh, I actually think that uh, that they, they have a contribution to make, as you've just said. So can you expand a little bit more on the on the particular role of, of our faith communities? Yeah, I think faith faith is one of the most powerful forces in human history. And but power is ethically neutral. It can be used for good, it can be used for ill. And we've seen both of that in history. We see both of that today. But I think that to use the phrase, faith can move mountain mountains. Faith and belief and people who are opinion and belief leaders can do something that political legislators cannot. That is, they can soften hearts and they can they can change social attitudes. Legislators largely are confined to making laws and making rules, telling us within which parameters we are allowed to operate. But faith and social leaders can inspire us to want to behave in different ways. When I think of the, the people I most admire, the people who are my personal heroes, there are three who come to mind um, amongst others, but they would have to be 
Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And it does not escape my notice that those three men, though radically different from one another, were all faith leaders. Martin Luther King Jr. could not have been Martin Luther King Jr. if he had not been Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I think that is, I think that is desperately important. So what can faith contribute? At, at its core, every faith that I've ever come across has some version of the divine imperative to love our neighbor. And I think that, that depolarization and indeed any kind of decent society must be founded on that. We can disagree about all sorts of things. We can hold one another's belief systems in contempt. But in the final analysis, if we don't care about one another, then nothing else can work. And if we do care about one another, then all those other challenges can be overcome. I think that faith also has the ability to impart a sense of humility. And I know that there are people who are listening to this podcast who may arch their eyebrows when I say that, because we've all had the experience of people who have used faith to do the opposite, to say that they know and others do not know, that they too, either literally or metaphorically, speak with the voice of God. That's not the lesson I take away from, from, from the faith traditions I've been part of and that I've witnessed. Virtually all faith traditions will hold that we are all the, the same imperfect children of the same perfect providence, that none of us has a monopoly into the mind of God, and indeed none of us can truly apprehend the mind of God. As a result, we are all wrong, <laughs> um, and we have to be patient with ourselves and patient with others, because on the one hand, their errors are no different from our errors, and our ability to teach them is less than our ability to learn from them. The idea that we owe each other a duty of care is very much a faith-based argument. The idea that we are all of us falling short of the truth, but we are all together on a quest for the truth is also a faith-based idea. And the, the aspiration that our salvation as individuals and societies lie not in a, an individual or lonely journey, it lies in a journey that involves other people that is also a faith-based idea. That sense that we are in this together, that we cannot, that none of us is going to reach the promised land alone, I think that is the core component of a free, democratic, and cohesive society. And you know, Akash, I, uh, I have so many more questions, but I think that's such a, a wonderful thought to... Uh, end this uh, discussion. You've been very, very generous uh, with your time and you've shared so many fascinating uh, insights uh, from your experience, from your work. You obviously have uh, uh, worked through many of these issues and, and, and you know, you've, you've given it a tremendous amount of thought. And I really want to thank you for sharing your insights with us uh, uh, today. You've given us lots to think about as we try to heal a, a nation that is far too divided. So thanks again. Thank you, John. We hope you enjoyed this edition of The Moment, a production of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, the founding institution of Wilfrid Laurier University, located in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Visit our website, publicethics.ca, for resources and more information on other podcasts. 
The technical producer of today's recording was Jackson Del Cero, with support from Alex Kinsella. Creative Commons music was provided by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.